There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Good morning. Turn through your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Please, if you can, stand when you get that. Go down to verse 27. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephah before me? Did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons more than me? to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Till the days are coming, I will cut off your arm, the arm of your father's house, that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel. There shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off my altar shall consume your eyes with grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that it will come upon your sons on Hophni and Phinehas, and one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, Please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that we've had a chance to worship you. That's been great. It's been great to fellowship. And, Father, now we turn to your word and just pray, Father, that we wouldn't be like those who behold ourselves in a mirror, then forget what kind of person that we are, but that we will look intently into your law of liberty and that we will do the things that it tells us to do. We ask in your name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In the forests of northern Europe and Asia, there's a little animal called the ermine, which is known for his snow-white fur. He instinctively protects his white coat against anything that would spoil it. His fur is so fine, there is nothing more beautiful on the fur markets of the world. In some countries, the state robes of judges are lined with it because white is emblematic of purity and honor. Now, fur hunters take advantage of this unusual trait of the ermine. But the interesting thing is, they don't set a trap to catch him. 
But instead they find his home, which is usually a cleft in a rock or a hollow in an old tree. They smear the entrance with grime and filth. Then the hunters set their dogs loose to chase the ermine. The frightened animal flees towards his home, his only place of refuge, but he refuses to enter because of the filth. Rather than soil his white coat, he is trapped by the dogs and captured while preserving his purity. To the ermine, it is better to be stained by blood than spoiled by uncleanness. For the ermine, purity is more precious than life. Would to God we would all guard our purity with that same type of resolve. The past couple of sermons, we have seen the dichotomy that existed between righteous Samuel and Eli's two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Well, this morning we're going to begin to understand and see the inevitable outcome of both of those lives. One will be for the good, and the other will end in loss, which is what the Bible promises. For Romans 6 says, the wages of sin is still death. Look at verse 27 with me. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me? to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. God says to Eli the priest, I chose your father out of all the families in Israel to be my priest. And to go to my altar. I gave your family all of my offerings. Why then do you look with a greedy eye at my sacrifice and my offerings, fattening yourself on the choicest parts? How's that for an indictment? Why do you look with greedy eyes at my sacrifices, fattening yourselves? Then listen to the consequences. Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed, or could be translated, treated with contempt. One man who took that verse to heart was a young man from Scotland. His name was Eric Little. It was at the Paris Olympic Games in 1924 that he was challenged to ignore his convictions. And although that was 90 years ago, he's still well known through the film Chariots of Fire, which was inspired by his life. You see, Eric was a world-class sprinter. His best chance of winning a gold medal for Britain was in the 100 meters for which he was entered. But more than an athlete, Eric was a devout Christian. In fact, he was training to be a missionary, and he sometimes wondered if his love for running was a distraction from his Christian service. But after thinking and praying about it, he came to the conclusion that When I run, I feel God's pleasure. He wanted to do his best for God and for country, but when he heard that the trials for the 100 meters were to be held on Sunday, he refused to run, 
saying that Sunday is for the Lord, as the fourth commandment told him, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's what his conscience told him to do and what he felt was right for him, although he was under a tremendous amount of pressure to give in. Can you imagine having an entire country disappointed in you because of your personal convictions? But instead of running the 100 meters on Sunday, he goes to church and preaches a sermon. Eric was given a very special verse from the Bible. It's the one that we're looking at this morning where it says, Those who honor me, I will honor. He found this to be true. Instead of the 100-meter race that he had trained for, he was given the opportunity the next day to run in the 400 meters, which although he had not trained for, he still won the gold medal in. God did indeed honor him. But you know what? Even if he would have came in last place, he still would have won from an eternal perspective. In fact, I bet you couldn't name the person that won that 100-meter race that Eric missed because of his convictions. That is just a footnote in history. But today we are still talking about Eric Little and the devotion that he had for his God. For the rest of his life, he continued to serve as a missionary in China and was eventually imprisoned by the Japanese. That shows us that even if we do everything right, bad things can still happen to us. The cross of Christ being the supreme example of that. The Christian life isn't always an easy option. But you can be sure that God does indeed honor those who honor him. Eric Little died as a result of his imprisonment and is now in heaven with the Lord he loved and served with a reward far greater than the Olympic gold that he won in 1924. Think about that. Winners of an Olympic event receive a wreath of leaves as a crown, which soon withers away. But God gives more than that. Eric could say with St. Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me on that day. Matthew 26 tells us of the time that Mary came to a meeting place and broke an alabaster jar of perfume on the feet of Christ. And as she was performing this great act of love, the disciples were saying to each other, Why this waste? Jesus rebuked them and explained that she was actually anointing him for his burial. I want us to understand one thing very clearly this morning. Anything ever done for Christ is never a waste. Mary knew this. Eric Little knew this. And I want us to know it also. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. And one day they shall die, both of them. 
the privilege of the priesthood would remain with the tribe of Levi and the house of Aaron, but God would take it away from Eli's branch of the family. Eli's descendants would become weak and eventually die off, and there would be no more old men like Eli in that family. They would have to beg for their food and plead for an opportunity to serve. God will not honor those who will not honor him. Hophni and Phinehas and even Eli had failed to honor God as God. They cannot therefore expect to continue in their current role. So we all know from Galatians 6, 7 that God is not mocked. Not only that, their punishment will fit their crime. The gluttonous bullies will become hungry beggars. It is just as Hannah said back in verse 5. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. And when the historian records these events in 1 Kings 2.27, he will add the following comment. Thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. All the prophecies mentioned in these verses are going to come to pass. And as we move through the word of God, we will see each of these things happen one after the other. Verse 35, Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, Please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. Well, who is the faithful priest that it is speaking of? It could be Samuel, although Samuel was not really a priest but a prophet because he was not from the tribe of Levi. But we'll see him minister like a priest in the offering of the sacrifices. But who is this ultimately talking about? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hannah's prayer, if you remember, he is mentioned as King the Messiah who was to come. He has been mentioned by Moses as a prophet, and now in 1 Samuel he is mentioned as a priest. The Lord Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He is the only one who will ever fulfill all three of those offices. Now here's what I can tell you about Eli. If you were to rewind 40 years, when he first started out as a priest, this is not what he wanted. Along the way, this isn't the direction that he wanted to go. You can be sure that he wanted to end up in a different place. It's not something that he meant to have happen, but it happened. But he knew the warning signs from God. He smelled the smoke. He saw the ash falling into his yard, and he thought, I'm going to do something about that. But he doesn't. He never does. It's like when that check engine light comes on in our car. It's usually not wise to ignore that. Heard of one woman who put a piece of black electrical tape over it so she wouldn't have to see it anymore. There, problem solved. So the question for you and me is not just can we see the warning signs of God, but what are we going to do? How are we going to respond? Because they call us to action. His warnings call us to do something with a sense of urgency. 
So we're going to look at some things here in Eli's life, and I think we'll all find ourselves to some point in this story. We're going to consider what keeps us from really responding to the warnings that the Lord sends us. Eli was not only a priest for over 40 years, he was also a judge. What we need to realize, that was very unusual in the nation of Israel. Typically, those positions were held by more than one person. But Eli had taken on the offices of both priest and judge. Now, that would have translated into a very busy, overextended kind of life. He would have had his hands full as a priest and judge of Israel. And here is what would happen. He would get really busy, like us, especially at work. We get overextended And we see God's warning lights in other places, perhaps in our spiritual life or in Eli's case in his family life. We see these lights flashing, and it's not that we don't recognize them. It's just that we're just so very busy right now. So our response to God's warnings is procrastination. Here's what we say to God. I'll get to it later. I'll get to it later. It's not that I don't agree that there's a problem. It's not that I don't see that the fire is getting close, but it's just such a busy season right now. And when things slow down, and when I can finally catch my breath, I'm going to address that thing over there. We intend to. It's our plan. It's on our to-do list. I'm going to address those things one day. I just can't do it right now because I've got a full plate. And I've got a busy schedule. So here's what we do. We let ourselves off the hook because we convince ourselves we're going to get to it eventually. We say, God, I hear what you're saying. I recognize that these things do need some attention. And it's not that I don't care. I do care. I am going to address this. I just can't do it right now. I'll get to it later. So we let ourselves off the hook, convincing ourselves that we really address these warnings from God. When in actuality, we haven't done anything. We've just acknowledged them and said, one day, I'm going to get to it. But it's easy to deceive ourselves, isn't it? I saw a t-shirt last week that said, I've decided to live forever. So far, so good. But this is procrastination. I think that we've all been guilty of that at some time in our lives. Like the guy who said he was going to start a club for procrastinators, but just never got around to it. But eventually what happens is what we read in verse 25. We read that his sons were finally too far gone. By the time he finally gets around to actually doing something for Eli and his sons, it is now too late. You see, for some of you, and believe me, I know what it's like as I've been there, you sense God's call on your life. The Holy Spirit has been convicting you about a change, about something you need to address, and you sense it, and you're going to do something about it, but you say, I just can't do it today, I'll do it tomorrow. Whenever you hear the word tomorrow, or whenever you think of the word next week, I can tell you this much. Most likely, that is not coming from the Holy Spirit. When God is challenging you, and when he is warning you about something, 
there is still something within us that says, I'll take care of that tomorrow. That is not coming from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, now is the time. Hebrews says, today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts. The Holy Spirit inspired Solomon to write these words in Proverbs. Don't boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. But we procrastinate. It's not that we don't care. We just think it can wait until later. But sometimes things just can't wait until later. They are just too important. April 26, 2003, Aaron Ralston was enjoying a passion that he had. Aaron loved climbing mountains in the remote areas of Utah. And one day while he was climbing through a tiny opening about three feet wide, he put his right hand on a nearby boulder to adequately brace himself to climb through the opening. And when he did, his weight caused his huge boulder to shift, and the shifting trapped his hand underneath the boulder. He did everything that he could to free his hand, but nothing worked. As darkness fell that night, he knew he was in trouble. By the way, April 26 was on a Saturday. By Tuesday, he was completely out of water, and he had given up hope he would ever be found by any of the other climbers that would have been in the area. If he was going to survive, he was going to have to save himself. Now he was down to only one escape route. It was a morbid one, but it was all that he had left. Not only was it morbid, it was almost unthinkable. He was considering cutting off his arm directly below his elbow. The difficulty was the knife that he had was just a small, dull pocket knife. Aaron spent most of Wednesday trying to think of exactly what he would have to do to amputate his arm. He knew that a tourniquet was imperative because he could not afford to lose very much blood. After a day and a half without water, he was in a serious state of dehydration and was terribly weak from lack of food. Trying to think through more of the details, he thought that he was probably five miles or so from his pickup. And on Thursday, his fifth day, he decided it was going to be now or never. It was going to have to be either his arm or his life. I met a lot of people in my life who are trapped just like Aaron. Well, not in some remoteness, mountainous area in Utah, but in habits and in lifestyles. Some are trapped by habits and desires of their flesh. Others have fallen prey to thinking that just around the next bend they will finally capture that big deal. But unlike Aaron, they are totally oblivious to their entrapment. Death is looking them squarely in the eye, and they lack perception on the matter. To their way of thinking, I've just made some bad business deals, or I've made a few wrong turns, or I can quit this addiction any time that I want to. However, when you get in that deep, getting out will require some drastic and immediate action. For Aaron, it was his arm or his life. He had to make a hard, difficult, and serious choice. He knew that he could not have it both ways. Aaron was a man of courage. He made the tough choice. 
After a crude amputation, he rappelled down a 60-foot cliff and hiked nearly six miles before rescuers finally spotted him. He was then airlifted to a hospital ER where park ranger Steve Swanky told reporters this, I've never seen anybody like him. His will to live is unbelievable. I've been doing this for 25 years, and I've never seen a warrior like him. The challenge for every person in this church this morning is to determine what is going to get the most of our significance. What is our ultimate legacy going to come from? Is it our job or our home? Will it be our career or your kids? Will it be our ego or our destiny? Now, I know that those can be some unsettling questions, but they are necessary questions, and we may need to cut something off. If something has been flashing in your mind while I was saying all that, that is probably the thing that you need to amputate. And so I encourage you to get out your spiritual penknife and do it. I can tell you from experience that you will never regret doing it. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Now, the story of God's calling to Samuel is often reserved for children's church, but this morning, let's bring it out of the nursery and into the adult department. The book Alice in Wonderland was written by Lewis Carroll for Alice Lindell, who was a child of a friend of his. But underneath that story was a philosophical indictment against the social order of his day. And so the story that we have is Samuel's call is much more than just a delightful story for children. Not only is it a beautiful story, it also marks one of the great transitional periods in Scripture. We are going to see the change from theocracy to monarchy and from priest to king. It initiates a drastic change in the form of government. The period of judges is now over, and God will no longer be moving through the priests. He is now raising up a priest prophet. Samuel will minister for the Lord, but his office will be that of a prophet. It is he who will pour the anointing oil on both King Saul and David. Now, we need to keep in mind as we go through this that this was a time of great moral relativity. There were no absolutes to govern people's behavior because everyone followed through with what they thought was right in their own eyes. We are told in verse 1, In those days the word of the Lord was rare. There was not many visions. Now God seemed silent, perhaps because he had been pushed out of people's lives so much that God, always a gentleman, had finally accommodated their request. The spiritual leaders were corrupt, And God's people weren't obeying his law anyway, so why should God say anything new to them? The silence of God was the judgment of God. And one of the most severe judgments that God can ever impose is just to say, you want to live in darkness? Fine, I'll cut the lights off on my way out. And yet we live in similar times today, don't we? Moral relativism is assumed by most people. There are laws which make certain things illegal, but no moral absolutes to make those things wrong. And so because so many of our laws have no moral foundation upon which they are based, we are beginning to see all kinds of laws being questioned and challenged to why they are illegal. 
Things like, why can't a man have more than one wife? Why can't a brother marry his sister if they love each other? Why shouldn't a man be able to purchase a willing female to satisfy a sexual appetite? Why can't people enjoy mind-altering drugs? Why should old people or sick people continue to live if they want to die? And the list continues to grow as moral relativism gathers momentum. It is in this environment that God will call a young boy to change the nation. In closing, up to this point, Samuel has not said one word. He has just been faithful in the common things. His life first could have been, who is faithful in little is also faithful in much. Samuel had no great career aspirations. He was simply doing the mundane things that often supplement ministerial work. He was simply being faithful and going about his business. In the same way that Moses was simply a good shepherd to his father-in-law Jethro, and then God interrupted him with greatness. Joseph was simply a good servant to his father, then Potiphar, and then when he was falsely imprisoned, he was such a model prisoner that the chief jailer gave him the keys to the jail. He was the Old Testament version of Otis from the Andy Griffith show. Some of you have no idea who I'm talking about. When you get home, Google Old Testament Mayberry references, and uh, that should get you what you need. We see David was just taking food up to the army, the original version of Mills on Wheels, and God interrupted him and had him kill a giant. He then became the head of the army and then eventually the king of Israel. Here's what I want us to see. Great men and women aren't born great. They are simply faithful wherever they are placed, doing whatever task the Lord has required of them. In the New Testament, when Jesus called his disciples, every one of them were already engaged in some type of work, whether it was collecting taxes or manning a fishing boat. It's the old adage of, you can't steer a parked car. This first should be noted by anyone who wants to be a servant. Find ways that you can minister to the Lord, where no one else sees what you're doing, but where you are simply pleasing the Lord because he is worthy. Because none of us never know what the Lord has planned for any of us if we are willing to serve wherever and however he chooses. And Lord, that's the heart that we want. We want a servant's heart, Lord, for we say we want to be like you. Philippians 2 tells us that you, although you were God, set that aside that you could serve people like us. So I pray, Lord, that you would just burn that into our spirits. Help us to find ways to serve, Lord. And, Father, that we would just come back here next week a little bit stronger, growing a little bit more than we have today. And most like, most, most importantly, Lord, a little bit more like you. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.